Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern Bar Cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 205 of the Modern Bar Cart podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. This time around, we catch up with booze author, spirits judge, and friend of the podcast, Eric Zandona, to talk about his most recent book, The Atlas of Bourbon and American Whiskey, A Journey Through the Spirit of America. Like many of my favorite books in the spirits and cocktail space, Eric's newest project draws from historical and contemporary research to make a few new and important points about traditional and emerging styles of American whiskey. But... Before we start talking about heritage mash bills, local cooperage, and terpene-driven single malts, let's give you a chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is Texas Grog. To make it, you'll need two ounces or 60 mLs of bourbon, bonus points if it's Texas bourbon, two ounces or 60 mLs of cold water, preferably filtered or distilled, one half ounce or 15 ml of orange juice, fresh squeezed if possible, one half ounce or 15 ml of simple syrup, and two dashes of an aromatic bitters like Angostura. Combine all these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, shake vigorously for about 10 or 15 seconds, then strain into a double rocks or bucket glass over ice and enjoy. According to Eric Zandona, quote, in the 19th century, several travelers observed Texans drinking in a wide array of grog shops, taverns, saloons, and ornate hotel lounges. Texas grog shops were most likely simple drinking establishments that served beer and a few simple cocktails, grog being a term used to describe a mixture of spirits, water, and citrus juice. Given that grapefruit, oranges, and a variety of other citrus fruits have been grown in the Rio Grande Valley on Texas's southern border since the time of Spanish colonization, and early Texans were known for their fondness for whiskey, it's not a stretch to imagine locals mixing these simple ingredients to make a refreshing drink. End quote. I love the Texas grog not just because it's a laid-back proto-cousin of the whiskey sour, but also because it features ingredients that naturally occurred in a very specific environment. You go to the Caribbean, you drink rum. You go to Japan, you drink sake and shochu. When you go to Texas, there's two things you can reliably count on. There will be whiskey, and you'll more than likely be able to get your hands on some local citrus. So, now that you've got a refreshing and easy-to-make bourbon cocktail to accompany you on our journey through the spirit of America, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this fascinating deep dive on American whiskey, some of the topics I discuss with author and spirits judge Eric Zandona include a quick rundown of a few pivotal points in our country's whiskey history, including the Taft decision and the pioneering female distiller who made her mark on the sour mash process how early geographical and climatic constraints set the stage for the traditional whiskey styles that would come to define local drinking cultures in various parts of the U.S. 
Then we get regional. We talk about the differences between Pennsylvania style and Maryland style rye whiskey. We look at Texas's unique barrel aging conditions, and we investigate the funky new world single malts of the Pacific Northwest. We also talk about some emerging legislation at the state level that classifies certain geographically limited categories like Kentucky bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, and the new and intriguing Missouri bourbon category. Along the way, we discuss why craft whiskey is so much better than it was five years ago, why more people should be talking about barrel entry proof, who serves the best martini in London, and much, much more. This interview is part of a couple features we're doing for National Bourbon Heritage Month, which runs the entire month of September. So if you didn't already have an excuse to hit the liquor store and grab a bottle of your favorite bourbon, you're welcome. Now you do. The one thing, however, I would like you to pay particular attention to as you listen to this interview is the way in which American whiskey is beginning to turn back, in many cases, to a more old-world way of thinking, naming, and regulating spirits. There's an inherent tension between no-holds-barred innovation and tightly controlled and limited geographic and process-based indications. And the way that a given state or a given distiller chooses to position themselves on that continuum can tell you a whole lot about what they're trying to achieve and how they're trying to convey value to you, the consumer. With that, Please pour yourself a dram, sit back, and enjoy this conversation about the ever-dynamic, ever-delicious landscape of bourbon and American whiskey with spirits author and judge, Eric Zandona. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I guess I should say welcome back to the podcast because the last (laughs) time we were here, we were talking about your book, The Tequila Dictionary, and... Mm -hmm. um, so before we get into the current project, can you just reacquaint yourself with our listeners? Tell us who you are and uh, the many things that you uh, find yourself doing on any given week in the spirits world. Yeah. So uh, my name is Eric Zandona, and I am a spirits writer, and I am also the director of spirits information for the American Distilling Institute. Uh, My primary task or job for them is I run their annual spirits competition called the Judging of Craft Spirits, um, which is primarily focused on small independent uh, distillers uh, around the world. Um, But in addition to that, I run a website uh, called easydrinking.com, and um, I've written a few books about uh, liquor. Yeah. And for those curious out there, that's initials E. Z, not E-A-S-Y. That's easyliteralydrinking.com for that. And uh, we've got a a cool project here in front of us. Uh, This is the Atlas of Bourbon and American Whiskey, a journey through the spirit of America. And I, I guess my first question here is, I tend to think of you as an agave guy when we are checking out the bottles at the end of the judging of craft spirits, which is where we met. Often I find you lingering among the agaves. And so I guess uh, to get us started here, why whiskey? And, and I guess as we were speaking just a moment ago, how did you decide to take the specific approach you used in this book to talk about American whiskey? 
Yeah, so I am a lover of agave spirits, but I'm also in the sort of parlance of San Francisco, you might say I'm sort of polyamorous when it comes to spirits. And so I, you know, I'm a big fan of whiskey and gin and rum. I just, me, I love spirits. So especially good ones. <laughs> and um, so I love agave spirits. I think they're really interesting and unique. And especially when you get into things like artisanal mezcal and bacanora, and there's so much interesting stuff that happens flavor-wise through the production process when you bring in things like natural fermentation and all that sort of stuff. So it's easy for me to geek out on those things. But whiskey is also delicious. I, I love it. I mean, my one of my first things that I ever drank where I was like, oh, I think I might like spirits was was a, a single malt scotch um, way back in, you know, 99 or something like that. And I was like, oh, that kind of got me started on my you know personal path. But um, so for this book, so this is actually the second book I've written on whiskey, the first one being the Bourbon Bible. And um you know, the thing that's a little bit different for me and how I work is that um, the publisher I've been working with for the last three books, they essentially commissioned me to write. They have an idea that, that they think is going to fit well into the space and they know my abilities and my, you know, deep knowledge of spirits. And so they're just like, hey, do you think you can make this thing happen? I'm like, yeah. I can do that. So they approached me with this idea. They roughly knew they wanted some sort of atlas that had a sort of geographic um, sort of foundation for how the book was organized. And then I fleshed it out into what it is. And, and my approach was, is that you have these like classic regional American styles of whiskey that people talk about, Kentucky bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, and to a, a smaller uh, degree, things like Pennsylvania rye or Maryland rye are things that people would talk about from time to time in spirits writing. But there was not always like uh, th that field of knowledge about what those things exactly were is still developing. And so I thought that was a perfect opportunity to kind of talk about some of that stuff, but also springboard into these new conversations around what is empire rye coming out of new york what is the you know what is unique about bourbon coming out of texas or missouri um places that are starting to develop these new definitions for regional styles as well as these old ones so to me it was like a really fun project because it got to you know merge you know you get the classic or heritage producers out of kentucky and tennessee but it also left room for a lot of really interesting craft distillers um, around the country. So for me, I, it was a, a really fun project to work on. Yeah, I learned a lot just by reading through the introduction. And I mean, I've read plenty of whiskey books, Yeah, but you know, even just the, some of the more specific and timely details that you provided about things like the Taft decision, which set the tone mm -hmm. for a lot of um, bottled and bond stuff, or just some of the designations and terms that we use on whiskey labels. Um, the fact 
that uh, it was Catherine Carpenter who was sort of a, a pioneer in the sour mash method, which is something that is often talked about as a way to distinguish Tennessee whiskey from bourbon whiskey, but it's something that people still, I don't think, really have a good handle on. I, I know I personally don't have a very you know granular handle on exactly all of the things that makes, for example, Tennessee whiskey different from bourbon whiskey. So it was really nice to you know go through that introduction and be like, oh wow, you know, like the central thesis basically if i can spoil your book for everybody is that like yeah. there's a lot of regional and geographic differences that originated during the earlier history of our country whether we're talking about the 1700s with the whiskey rebellion or later on as mm -hmm. our country expanded westward but a lot of these geographic differences in things like climate or culture have set the tone for the types of whiskey that these regions have historically produced. And um, I just thought that was a really interesting way to look at it. And I don't think I've really seen that particular tack taken because it's not the high level tack where you're saying, this is bourbon, this is scotch, this is right. you know Irish whiskey. It's, it's more granular than that, but it's not so granular that we're just sitting there going through individual bottles, although you do make sure to feature quite a few of those, and, and we'll get to mm -hmm. that um, going forward. So, uh, were there were there any as you as you conducted this research for that introduction, where you're kind of giving us the the larger view of the landscape? Were there any things that you were surprised to learn, or um, interesting tidbits that you came across as you were setting the stage for the actual you know regions themselves? Yeah, I mean, the, the big thing for me that um, I guess I, I hadn't really thought much about, but quickly realized, oh, this is sort of obvious, is that one of the primary drivers for why, say, people in Northern Virginia and Maryland made whiskey slightly different than the people in Western Pennsylvania was mostly due to the fact of what crops grew well there which kind of seems obvious, right? When you're in agrarian society, you're not going to try and force corn to grow in Western Pennsylvania when it just doesn't really grow very well there. And so it's not that big of a surprise that their whiskey is dominated by rye with a little bit of barley to help with the enzymes to, you know, convert the starch into sugar. And so that like that, thing is really, I think, what teed me off in the beginning when I was doing the research initially for the book of like, there is a real interesting argument to be made here. And that's why in the very beginning of the introduction, I mentioned Scotch and Irish whiskeys, as well as French brandies, and how most of their history of how they developed happened pre-industrial revolution, where there's not as much trade, there's not as much cross-commercial, you know, trade and and uh, immigration and things like that and so these spirits were able to develop in these really strong like microclimates and develop very specific rules and geographic boundaries whereas american whiskey it starts that way you have these distinctions that start but then within 50 to 80 years of the american project there's you know, railroad networks all over the country and market capitalism and all this sort of stuff that makes trade between Kentucky and DC and New York and 
all those other places much more uh, viable. And so you have this sort of merging of a pre-industrial sort of whiskey culture that developed very early and then that coalesce or crashing into sort of market capitalism and transportation networks that, you know, helped kind of speed up things. And so I thought that to me, that was like super interesting. And um, so that was the, that was the big kind of aha thing for me at the very beginning was like, these geographic distinctions are actually founded in something in their agrarian basis but then that quickly changed, but they lingered despite that, uh, the fact that you could then, you know, if you were a distiller in Pennsylvania, it was easy for you to get corn in the, you know, 1880s, but they kept making rye whiskey in the same way that they did in the 1780s. Right. And I've, I've actually been to Monongahela, Pennsylvania, old Monongahela, mm -hmm. which is where that style was sort of centered. And yeah. yeah it's not like a super fertile place. So if you're going to grow something, you got to grow something pretty hardy like rye, which is used in other parts of the country as a cover crop for the winter. Mm -hmm. You know, they call it winter rye. It's there to keep the, you know, keep the soil um, covered so that it doesn't get eroded, blown away and, and otherwise sort of just um, spoiled by the, by the weather. And uh, it's interesting to me in that usually when I think of American spirits, Sometimes whiskey, I guess often whiskey, I, I, maybe I, I tend to think of the American single malt category as the epitome of this, but it seems to me that American spirits are more interested in pushing boundaries and uh, voiding label terms rather than sticking to them as a type of like heritage type of thing when compared to Scotch whiskey and, and the French distillates that we were just speaking about. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is interesting because the primary tension when a craft distillery starts up, like one of the primary tensions to me seems to be, all right, are you a traditionalist in that if you are a Maryland distillery, is your first big product launch going to be your Maryland style rye? Right. Or are you gonna go away from that and say, well, we happen to be in Maryland, but that doesn't matter. We're doing what we want to do anyway. We're doing, you know, funky Jamaican style rums in Maryland or something like that. Right. Uh, so it's interesting that you identified that tension right off the bat because it really does set us up for what I would call the bookend of that, where now we're starting to see these emerging references to past what we might call you know, like uh, resurrected traditions like the Indiana style, the Missouri style, the Texas style, the Texas might just be a new thing in and of itself. But mm -hmm. it's interesting that regionality in certain places and in certain ways is coming back around. So I definitely wanted to spend a good chunk of time on this so that our listeners could keep that primary tension in the clouds as we have the rest of our conversation. Yeah. What is what does regionality bring to a given whiskey? And to what extent, like it's almost like a litmus test. You can walk up to a bottle of whiskey and say, to what extent does this maker infuse regionality or juxtapose regionality in this spirit? And I think that's one question that you can ask a bottle of whiskey. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. That is one of the primary tensions that you see among craft distillers. I mean, I think one good example is say like Corsair in, in Tennessee, you know, they've actively not made a Tennessee whiskey. 
They've done American single malt. They've done gin. They've done lots of hopped whiskeys. All the like that was their methodology of like differentiating themselves. They make a really nice rye whiskey as well. So that's you know where. But then you have people say like Dad's Hat in uh, Pennsylvania, where that they were very conscious about leaning into that sort of traditional style. Um, and so I think that that is something interesting. I mean, each company is distiller is going to have their own way of how they're going to try and market and differentiate themselves. But I think one of the interesting thing is that these sort of regional styles, which are, you know, on the macro level at the U.S. legal federal level, right? Rye whiskey can made, be made anywhere. Bourbon can be made in, in any state. Um, but the groups of distillers are trying to find ways to kind of differentiate themselves in little ways. And, and um, the result that I see largely is lots of really interesting and tasty whiskeys. So, you know, we as the consumers get the benefit from that. Totally, totally. Uh, so talking about the organization of this book, you go by region. It's mm -hmm. an atlas. And right. so that makes sense. We're doing a little, we're doing a little travelogue, a tour of the country from the comfort of our own homes or wherever we happen to be reading this book. And I I don't want to spoil each region and mm -hmm. make it so that people don't need to buy the book, but I was wondering if you might just give us sort of the progression of the regions as you see them, and maybe we'll dive into one or two examples here or there, especially with those emerging ones. I really want to talk about the Texas and the Missouri yeah. and the Indiana, because yeah. it, I, I recall, I want to say two years ago at ADI, Steve Beal mm -hmm. gave what to me was this mind-blowing talk about the differences in rye whiskey styles. Yeah. And to me, that just completely unlocked a whole different way to think about it. So maybe we can do a, a miniature version of that here for our listeners by just sort of walking them through the way that you chunked these regions out and how you distinguish them. Yeah. So the first four chapters are essentially bourbon. So we have a Kentucky bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, which is bourbon, but made in Tennessee. And there's lots of people who fight over that, but that's what it is. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, Missouri bourbon and Texas bourbon, Missouri, uh, did an interesting thing where recently they decided to pass a law in the state saying, if you follow these parameters, you get to label your spirit as Missouri bourbon. So their rules are your corn has to be grown in Missouri, but then the wood that your barrels are made from also have to be like grown and coopered in Missouri. And that's really interesting to me because Missouri is like this unique state where you can do both of those things really well. Most American whiskey barrels are made from white oak grown in the Appalachian, or excuse me, in the Ozarks and in Missouri. And so, you know, uh, there's a, a great distiller named Gary uh, Heingardner in Missouri who raised the question, he's like, we grow all this corn and we and wood, and then we sell it to Kentucky for them to make bourbon, and then we buy the bourbon. Like, why don't we just make it ourselves? And so, um, and so that's what they're doing. And so I, to me, that's a really interesting sort of way to for them to approach their sort of product. Texas, I think, is really interesting in part because un, unlike most other states, Texas has such an intense 
uh, climate for maturing whiskey that you can get really mature whiskeys within 18 to 24 months. You can't do that in, te in Tennessee. You can't do that in Kentucky. Can't do that really in New York or other places, but you can do that in Texas. And so to me, one of the defining characteristics of what makes Texas whiskey unique is the fact that you have this really intense and short maturation period. And so one of the whiskeys that I highlighted in the book was um, made by Milliman Green. It's their first batch of their stuff. So they've been bottling purchased whiskey and, but they also been distilling their own. So they released their first batch cast strength 61% or something, you know, crazy. Um, and it was delicious. It was just incredibly delicious aged just for a short period of time, 24 months, I think maybe. And it's just, so that to me is a really interesting thing about what is possible with American whiskey is you can let the climate and the culture of the environment sort of dictate what the whiskey should be. So people making bourbon in Texas are not making whiskey like they are in Kentucky and they shouldn't, right? Because, and Dan Garrison is famous for the saying like, um, that, you know, the, the whiskey should, you know, the place where it's matured should dictate how you're making it. And, um, and I agree with him and he makes great whiskey. So, uh, to me, that's one of the really interesting things about those first kind of four, you know, um, then after that, I dive into rye whiskey and I start with a chapter on Indiana because even though it's not the like oldest style of rye whiskey, it has had the largest impact on the sort of resurrection of rye whiskey in American drinking culture. And so I go into some of the detail of the history of basically um, you know, the Crown Royal uh, Company that, you know, uh, Seagram 7, that company and how that changed hand numerous times and became NGP. And then they sold whiskey, you know, to everybody and their mother. And, and, and you, know, you get things like Bullet Rye, which is now the dom the leading rye whiskey uh, by sales in America. I think it's something like 90% of all rye whiskey is Bullet. And it's really tasty stuff. So, you know, and it works really well in cocktails. And so I kind of start there as a sort of reintroduction of this is what a lot of people know is rye whiskey now is this 95% uh, rye, 5% malted barley mash bill from MGP. And then go into some of the craft uh, rye coming out of Indiana. And then I dive into some of the more historical styles of Pennsylvania and Maryland. And then the new one on the street, which is New York. Um, and their, you know, their state law again is dictating this. They have a certain requirement that, um, you know, 75% of all the spirits that they make have to come from New York grown agriculture. And so all the rye whiskey that's coming out of there, hundred percent of the rye is New York grown. And so that's adding another interesting regional variation. Um, oh, there, there were a lot of whiskeys I couldn't include in regions I wanted to include. Um, just as a you know, quick aside, like there's some really great rye whiskeys and bourbons coming out of Colorado. And uh, one of example, Law's Whiskey House, they have rye that they're grow, you know, working with a farmer to grow in a very specific valley of Colorado and it's making fantastic whiskey. So I think that's, you know, and that's something I think we were gonna touch on, touch on later is like this 
sort of mixture of re-regionalization, but also local is a localization where distillers are getting their grains. I think is it has an impact, and I think it's really interesting to taste through these things and see it's not just you know where it's made or how it's made, but what ingredients they're using, and that all that combined together is really kind of drives these these interesting things. And then I do a, a quick chapter on smoked whiskey, which it, you know it's a growing category in America, and I kind of just focus. There's smoked whiskeys being made everywhere, but I looked at. The, the, the start is really in the southern U.S., southern states, and so I kind of tie that together. And then American single malt from the Pacific Northwest. Um, and again, American single malt's being made everywhere, and there's some great ones coming out of Nantucket, but uh, Pacific Northwest is kind of leading in some ways that kind of conversation. And so I thought that was a good sort of regional uh, uh, chunk to include for the book. Sure. They're growing most of the barley up there, aren't they? Yeah. And that's one of the interesting things as well. So like Washington, Oregon, Idaho, but even like Montana, they grow like most of the barley in the United States. Barley is a cold climate sort of grain. One of the reasons why it does well in Scotland and other places. So, um, uh, so that that's working well for them. And so there's lots of distillers taking advantage of that sort of local grain, regional grain. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to circle back on, this is going to seem like a real, real deep zoom compared to what we mm -hmm. were just talking about. But when you were talking about things like the, uh, the empire rye and the, um, Indiana or Missouri, uh, the, I guess the specifically the Missouri rye whiskey where or Missouri bourbon rather, yeah. where the state passes a law. Now, when you talk to people who operate primarily outside the US or perhaps who come from Europe, right? They'll say, oh, the United States is really 50 different countries because you have different laws for right. just the three tier system. But but also when I personally think about geographic indications, especially, you know, when I talk to somebody about like Matt Petrick about Werspa in the rum world, the real question seems to be, who recognizes whom, right? Well, it's great that this small little island nation has this set of rules. The real question is, does the U.S. recognize these rules? Right. So similarly, in Missouri bourbon, do the other 49 states have to get together and like recognize Missouri bourbon? Or is this just a situation where the state, because you're distilling license or not the distilling license, because your business license or something comes from the state, this is just a little privilege, like a little added label boost that you get. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how to think about these state level geographic indications because it's something that I come across so rarely. Yeah, so this is something that I think is really interesting that it's it's kind of complicated and I'm not a legal expert, but um, there is essentially this sort of, layering that's happening when you look at a label of bourbon say for instance be it kentucky bourbon or missouri bourbon there's this layering that's happening because you have the the federal rules about what that label can say and what bourbon means and when you can say that but then the interesting thing is that the states also can apply level uh, 
uh, layers on top of that. So as an example, Kentucky bourbon is also regulated at the state level. And it's very sort of loose. It's become tighter over time, but it essentially means that that whiskey, in order to put Kentucky on the label for your bourbon, it has to be aged at least one year in the state and it has to be made, the whiskey has to be like fermented, mashed and distilled and aged in the state of Kentucky. And so if you had a six month old bourbon made in Kentucky, you couldn't say Kentucky bourbon on the label. And so that's just an interesting thing that the states have kind of put this other additional layer. And similar in Missouri's done a, a similar thing with the, and Tennessee now has a state law defining Tennessee whiskey. And so, uh, these states are basically saying like you're a distiller in our state if you want to be able to call out like this is missouri bourbon these are the steps that you have to meet and these rules at least with missouri bourbon were um crafted in large part by the missouri guild of distillers the Mer missouri craft distillers guild and so they kind of decided as a group like this is what we want uh, to kind of defend and champion uh, among our our spirits and so you know they brought that to the state legislature and democracy at work right people petitioning the representatives and laws get passed and so now they have this thing that they can use you know in marketing whereas say like in california as far as i know the state doesn't have a definition of you know for whiskey that that would prohibit anyone from putting california rye whiskey or california wheat whiskey on a bottle it's made in California. Okay, there you go. Put it on the label. Um, so the different states have have taken different approaches to this, and I to me that's it's again. There's this. I don't know exactly the mechanism of how these state laws and federal laws overlap, but the result is is that each state you know recognizes it, and so you you have you know you wouldn't be able to make a Missouri bourbon in Arkansas, and then you know. So there, you know, there are limitations on that. Well, it's so fascinating too, because I think the word that you use, layering, is absolutely perfect for this. I mean, it's kind of the way that our government works anyway, right? In terms of federal versus state, but even when you compare Kentucky and Tennessee against the new Missouri, well, Kentucky bourbon, like it was, it was sort of a myth for the longest time in yeah. the US that you could only make bourbon in Kentucky. So having that Kentucky on your label is like, oh, this is Kentucky bourbon. I know it's not a knockoff. So you could see there's like a there's like a perception of quality associated with that term in the same way that there's a perception of quality associated with champagne. In mm -hmm. that, oh, it's not just some sparkling wine from France. This is champagne. This is the good right. stuff, the real deal. And so on the other hand, it's like Missouri bourbon. It's like, I ain't never seen that on a bottle. So yeah. like, what really are you trying to tell me when you say Missouri bourbon? So it's interesting that you have some of these state laws being used almost the same way as uh, the not the geographic indications, but the process-based type things like that you'll mm -hmm. see in various Cognac, Armagnac, Pisco type things. Right. And then on the other hand, Missouri Bourbon's doing almost like a different style of project in that they're really communicating with primarily their local people saying like, hmm, like 
check out what we're doing here. Don't go to Kentucky to get your bourbon. We're doing it all here. So right. whereas the Kentucky and Tennessee are speaking perhaps more to a national audience, the Missouri designation is maybe more focused locally. And we'll see if that trend can kind of snowball into something a little bit more popular around the entire country. If, if you can get some really outstanding whiskeys coming from Missouri. So I love the idea of layering when it comes to that sort of stuff, because to me, that signals to anybody who's listening that like, yeah, it's not just bourbon. It's not just rye. Like you can go deeper. And for example, I'm a member of the Maryland whiskey Facebook group. And it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's fascinating just to see how deep people go with just the local stuff. So, uh, to me, that's, it's a real granularization of the types of conversations that we can have. And for some people, you know, maybe that's going a little bit too deep. Whoa, maybe I don't need to know that much about my whiskey besides that it tastes good. But for some people, probably people listening to this podcast, that's exactly <laughs> the next rabbit hole you want to go down. So I'm glad yeah. that we got to talk about that. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. If you're like me, here are some things you might be like. You live in the Mid-Atlantic. You enjoy meat. You highly prefer that your meat is local, sustainable, and comes from ethically raised animals. And you'd absolutely love for someone to deliver it to your door once a month. If this sounds like you, then you need Near Country provisions in your life. Head over to nearcountry.com and check out their different, highly customizable meat delivery packages, and also browse their growing seafood selection. As a thank you for being a Modern Bar Cart listener, you can get two free pounds of ground beef or bacon included in your first order after subscribing if you enter the code BARCART, all one word, at checkout. That's BARCART, B-A-R-C-A-R-T, at checkout. Near Country Provisions is the real deal, and I can honestly say that I'd recommend them even if they weren't a sponsor. The meat and the local farmers they work with are just that good. Now, back to the show. So we, we've talked about some of the like the big regions in the book. And the other great feature, in addition to just introducing these regions, is that you're featuring a bunch of distillers, not yeah. just the big guys, but also, you know, some of the more noteworthy craft distillers. And obviously you have a, a, a fairly decent advantage having worked with so many people in the judging over the years. And you, you've actually been able to see the aggregated data of like mm -hmm. what actually tastes good according to our judges taste buds here. So yeah. um, talk to me about how you went about kind of featuring different spirits that you thought of, were standouts. And then also talk to me about this awesome feature where it says, if you just taste one, if you, if you try one. Yeah. Yeah. So initially the publisher wanted, you know, along with the sort of region was to kind of have like this, you know, uh, breakdown of distillers in the region. And we quickly realized that we had way too many. And, uh, and so then it became about, okay, how do we kind of pare this down in my earlier book, The Bourbon Bible, I have tasting notes on like 140 different bourbons. And so they didn't want to repeat that. They wanted something a little bit different. And so so we settled on this idea of kind of highlighting one. And so then that the question became like, okay, well, which one, right? If you have a big distiller, like say Jim Beam, like which of their whiskeys do you highlight? And there it became ones that, you know, I like or thought were really interesting. 
So, you know, for like some of the big players, like I picked unusual ones that maybe people aren't always familiar with. So like for Jim Beam, as an example, I picked Old Tub. It's a newer release from them. It's a four-year-old bottled and bond. I think it's really good. It has a classic, I think, Jim Beam profile. I like it better than some of their other whiskeys. And so I thought this is going to be some, and it's affordable. So to me, that's like something really nice. I'm not big on, you know, highlighting uh, a lot of sort of limited production or exclusive bottlings. But on the same token, like I also highlighted the Jack Daniels Bottled and Bond, which right now is only available at travel retail, but it's really good. And so if you're in that market, if you're traveling internationally, you see it, I'm like, you should definitely try and pick up a bottle because it's worth getting. There's some indication recently with label approvals that they might be bringing it to the US market. So that would be, I think, interesting. But then, you know, things like Empire Rye, uh, for example, in New York, you know, most of those are the, are small craft distillers. So maybe they make one or two rye whiskeys. So then it's a little bit easier about which one to pick. But even say like Copper, Copper Sea in the Hudson Valley, they make a sort of traditional straight rye whiskey and then they have a 100% uh, rye malt. And so I decided to pick that one because the really interesting thing to me is that rye whiskey has really divergent flavor profiles. Bourbons have a kind of spectrum that, you know, it is kind of easier to kind of nail down. Um, but rye whiskey can have these really divergent flavors depending on whether the rye is malted or not. And so malted rye tends to have this really grassy, intense flavor. And if you're not expecting that, if you all your rye experience is bullet, and then you have something with malted rye, whether it's dad's hat or this copper sea or something else, you're gonna be like, what is going on? This is like totally different. And initially it can be off-putting if you're not familiar with it, but it's really, if you get, once you kind of accept it and get used to it and like, no, this is the way it's supposed to taste, it really opens up and it's really interesting flavors. So that, those were things that I wanted to do as well as kind of help people understand like, oh, this thing is a little bit different about this whiskey. And so that's why, you know, but give it a shot and you might really enjoy it. And the same thing I would say, like with some of the American single malts, that's been an interesting, really interesting category for me. Because again, I start, you know, my primarily was drinking scotch or, you know, Irish, you know, single malts, things like that. There's a lot of really interesting stuff coming out of India now but american single malts tend to have this kind of hoppy kind of terpene character that you sometimes get and initially it can again be a little bit off-putting but it's part of the process that they're using that where these flavors are developing from some of their grain choices and so once you kind of know that going in it, if you're expecting, you know, a sort of classic scotch profile, you know, when you crack open a bottle of, say, Westland or Copperworks, you're, you might just be like, no, I don't want to drink this. But if you know going in like, oh, this is going to have a little bit of a character, a funky character to it that's a little bit different. And then you taste it, you might be open to knowing like, oh, okay, I kind of like I knew that going in, there's going to be maybe this like grapefruit rind kind of character 
to the flavor profile. I'm like, okay, I can, I can see that. I could get that. Um, and you know, just, I wanted to make sure people kind of, kind of had that awareness going in because a lot of these whiskeys will follow sort of classic flavor profiles and it's easy like, okay, I like that one better than this one. That's easy. But for the ones that were kind of divergent, I really wanted to make sure to highlight some of those so that people knew going in, like, this isn't bad whiskey. It's just a different style than maybe you're used to. And so if you're open to that flavor profile, you might really enjoy it. Yeah. I think that to me, when I was thumbing through and reading the different features of distillers and looking through the if you try one because some of these many i'll say many of these portfolios especially with the larger companies i'm familiar with so for example yeah. like wild turkey that's a bourbon that's all over the place mm -hmm. you chose to feature long branch which is yeah. probably their one of their most experimental versions i'm like oh okay so he's trying to kind of push people's boundaries a little bit with this and then you know conversely with the the Jim Beam bottled and bond, for example, you, you're really driving people toward like more of a bang for your buck type value. So whether it's the value of learning a new flavor note to associate with whiskey, right? Grapefruit, mm -hmm. rinds, whiskey, uh, not really in most people's lexicon, but you know, suddenly, you know, you get like, I, I call it like kind of breaking something in your brain. When you taste something, you're like, wait a second, did that really just go over my palate, like from a, mm -hmm. from a, a whiskey. And, and so I think there's tremendous value in, in kind of stretching people's palates in that way, as well as telling them, Hey, this is a great deal. If you happen across this at the liquor store, right. definitely pick one up. Because the other thing we do know, of course, about the American whiskey category that everybody is complaining about right now is how crazy the pricing and the allocations tend to be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, val monetary value is for better or for worse part of the game. So I, I think yeah. that that feature of the book is a really useful one. And as somebody who values structure, it's like, all right, like I, I love going through a book and seeing that the structure was so thoughtfully put together, you know, in such a way that even though it is an atlas, right? So maybe this is not a book that you sit and read cover to cover in right. one sitting or, or a couple of group sittings. It's still one of these books that can give value, especially if you are, for example, planning a trip to New York, right? If I'm going mm -hmm. to New York on a business trip and I've, I know that I have a weekend to maybe rent a car and, and go somewhere, then I'm going to grab this book. I'm going to see what is going on in the Hudson Valley or somewhere like that that's interesting, that's worth my stopover. So I think, it's, I think it gives a lot of value in that way. And uh, I, I think that you did uh, some interesting work featuring some of the the, the less uh, well-known exemplars of, of certain categories. Uh, so the the last thing that I wanted to talk about here involves uh, evaluations. You obviously, you, you give tasting notes of these whiskeys yeah. here. You run a spirits tasting every year. First off, the two-part question. First off, how do you think about judging a whiskey um you know we've got the various whiskey tables mm -hmm. and uh second off maybe we can after we cover that talk about some of the emerging trends which is something that this book also deals heavily with yeah so i mean when i'm using my judging cap when i'm you know whether it's iwc or whiskeys of the world or you know something else uh that other competition that i'm judging for 
You know, I, you know, so say example, it's a rye whiskey category um, and I'm tasting it. You know, there are things that I'm going to be looking for. And again, it kind of depends on how the competition is structured. One of the things that we've really, I've done and with the help of Steve Beal and David T. Smith and some others is really kind of hone in rye whiskey, separating out malted rye from, you know, non-malted rye. And so that you don't have this clash of flavor profiles. And so we do a lot of like micro sort of sorting. Um, so, but when I'm kind of just tasting stuff on my own that I just know, oh, it's rye whiskey, you know, 40 to 50% alcohol, you know, those are things I'm going to be thinking about in terms of like, I know these sort of regional stylistic variations. I'm not just looking for like the bullet profile and lots of spice and, you know, a strong oak character. And so that, those are like, I have lots of sort of data points in my head that I, I can play with and think about like where this sort of fits in. I think about how it's made based on what I can kind of glean from my taste buds, but then also like application. Um, I try to, I often like to think about things of like how they're used. Um, a good example of that I would say is like blended uh, uh, scotch. If you just taste blended scotch on its own, usually they're not very good, but you put it with sparkling water and uh, ice and it's delicious. So, you know, to me, it's, uh, I try to think about application as well, because I think that's important. So, um, so then, you know, and then I have my sort of gut instinct about where the sort of falls, things fall in their kind of quality of construction, application, and um, overall flavor profile, balance, things like that. And that's how I kind of generate a score for, for things. For, for my books, I veer away from giving scores um, because I don't want to give the impression that, oh, this one's better than the other one. Because to me, to a certain extent, like my preference of flavor profile, well, personally, it varies based on the temperature a lot. Like what I want to drink varies a lot by the weather um, and time of year. And so, and I also know like I have a particular preference. So like for bourbons, I tend to like sweeter ones that are less woody, but I also know lots of people who love woody bourbons, you know, that things that veer towards that range, say like Knob Creek. And that's great. Knob Creek's a good whiskey, but it's not what I'm gonna drink for fun at home because that's, that's not my flavor profile preference. So that's why I veer away from in my writing of giving scores because I know that there's a whiskey out there for everybody. And just because like, I don't necessarily want to drink it for fun on my own, doesn't mean that somebody else isn't going to really enjoy it. So that's why I try to kind of structure things that way. And when I kind of write and versus when I'm sort of judging, and that's a slightly different sort of cap that you wear. Yeah, no, it makes total sense, right? Because you're also not judging them blind when you're writing a book. Right. Otherwise, yeah. you'd have a bunch of, you know, bottle outlines with a question mark on it. Uh, and that <laughs> yeah. would be very yeah. useful to anybody as yeah. an atlas. But uh, right. speaking of applications, at the end of each section, you do include a cocktail. So can you just yeah. give us a couple of maybe maybe a couple of cocktail teasers? I'm particularly interested in the, the cocktail that has some Nocino in it. That one yeah. really stood so out to me. So again, the publisher wanted to have a cocktail at the end of each chapter that was sort of regionally related. So some of those were easy, like the mint julep for Kentucky, or the Lynchburg lemonade, 
the New York Sour uh, for the New York section, which was a really tasty cocktail. Uh, but then there were others that were a little bit more difficult to find, pick a drink. And so there were two that were uh, turned out to be really fun for me. One was the Texas Grog. So that came from this, this research that I did that in the early history of Texas, they had tons of what they called grog shops. They weren't called bars, they were grog shops. And so part of it's sort of based on this hypothesis that maybe one of the things that people were drinking in Texas was essentially just some bourbon mixed with a little bit of water and citrus, just like you would have in grog in a rum bar, right? So I, I found this, uh, this cocktail and I kind of tweaked it a little bit. And it turns out it's a really tasty cocktail. Like it's equal parts water and bourbon and some orange juice and a little simple syrup, I think, and bitters. And it goes down real easy and really easy to make, simple ingredients. And just I, it's super refreshing. So I was like, this is great. And it, it kind of fits this sort of kind of, again, this sort of imagination that I have of early Texas. Texas also had really fancy bars as well as these kind of like simple ones for the cowboys. And so I, I played with including a, a much more complicated cocktail for Texas as well, um, but that didn't end up making it in. But then for American single malt chapter Pacific of, of the Pacific Northwest, it really struggled for that because like there aren't a ton of cocktails for single malt. There's like the Rob Roy and there's a few others. And I just like nothing really jumped out at me. And so I decided to create my own cocktail, which I, which I ended up calling Cascadia. And so the, what I basically attempted to do was I wanted to make this really kind of hyper local cocktail. So American single malt from Pacific Northwest. Uh, and then I chose Nochino because uh, the uh, Washington and Oregon used to be the largest uh, walnut growing region in the United States. So Nochino is a walnut flavored liqueur and uh, I ended up finding out through this experiment of trying different stuff that the flavor profile of Nochino actually works really well with this, you know, again, like some American single malts can have this kind of slightly bitter, hoppy, some might call terpene kind of character to the flavor profile. And a lot of traditional cocktail ingredients didn't really pair well with that. And so I was so, but I found that Nochino actually does really well. The spice and somewhat bitter character of the Nochino with the sweetness of that as well actually worked really well with the American single malts. So I kind of use those. And then honey is also a big, you know, crop, I guess, so to speak, I don't know what you would call it, uh, industry in Pacific Northwest. So I wanted to add a little bit of honey character. So I made this honey syrup and added that in. Um, and I think there's, uh, some, uh, dash of bitters in there and it turned out, I think really, really good. So I was really happy with it. And, but that was, that was part of the struggle of like, how do you like use a, you know, a spirit base that has this unusual character or quality and it didn't really pair well with a lot of the classic kind of cocktails. And so kind of led me to this mixture that as it turned out, works really well as a regional sort of mixture as well, because walnuts and honey are, are really common in the Pacific Northwest as well. So it was kind of a happy, happy synergy. 
Nice. Yeah. It's, it's funny too, because when I looked at that formulation, just from a technical standpoint, I was like, Hmm, that sounds a little bit, a little bit sweet to me. And then I thought about actually judging a flight of Nocino at ADI and how the amount of sugar in those products varied so vastly from product yeah. to product. So even though you might need to tune your honey syrup in the Cascadia, depending on which Nocino you use, it's still, it's like, yeah, it's like that combo works really well. And I find that honey is a great, um, it's in a cocktail, I find, especially in a cocktail where you've got some potentially competing flavor notes, I find that honey is a really good binder, almost in the same sense that you would think of gin botanicals that you also talk about as mm -hmm. binders. They kind of grab these other flavor notes and say, all right, come on in here. Yeah. We make sense. Hugs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, one thing I kind of realized after that you, you mentioned that was that like, I'm using my own homemade, homemade Nocino too, when I was developing this. So like what I have at home is going to be slightly different than what people are buying off the shelf. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I still think it works as a, a kind of a base formulation you know obviously anybody can tweak the percentages or ratios in order to get it dialed in the way they like it but i think there's a real interesting synergy between these flavor profiles that that works well so as we wrap up the main portion of the interview here i want to talk about the future right mm -hmm. as the person who gets to see all these submissions that come in through the through adi for the judging of craft spirits you're able to get a sense of not only what's popular year over year what might be different in 2021 than it was in 2020 but also the different trajectories over perhaps say a, a period of five or more years of like all right where generally is this category headed so Whatever we're talking about, whether it's a kind of like year over year change or maybe a, a slower change or trajectory, what are some of the things that you are beginning to see emerging in the American whiskey market, whether that's at the large producer level, at the craft producer level, or at the regional level? Like, What is there to get excited about in terms of what's getting popular in American whiskey? Yeah, I think for me, the big thing that stood out over the last year or two is that there's a lot of really good whiskey out there and it's getting better. And, you know, the heritage distillers in Kentucky and Tennessee, you know, they've been making good stuff for a long time, but they are also experimenting, I think, in interesting ways as they what limited experiment, experimentation they can do at their scale. But even things like coming out of Dickel, right, with their Bottled and Bond series and now their eight-year-old bourbon um, that they released, I, you know, there are interesting things going on there. So that is, that's true. But then the other thing that's really changed, I think, is that a lot of the, what I would say, the kind of like middle and slightly older tier craft distillers their quality has improved significantly. And so the, to me, one of the big takeaways is, you know, if you have a local distiller that is making whiskey or, you know, other spirits and you're, you may be like, ah, it's okay. I'm not crazy about it. 
you know, come back and visit them in a year or two or three even. And, and by and large, if they're still there, they're going to be making a lot better product. And that's one of the things that I've sort of noticed, even in the gap between the bourbon Bible and this one, I, you know, got getting whiskeys from similar to the same distillers or different ones, just in a couple of year span, the whiskeys that I tasted are vastly, uh, I would say more mature and tasting better even than a couple of years ago. So that's one of the, I think, really interesting things that is like the overall quality of American whiskey is like just really, really improving. And one of the things that's exciting about that is that you get these craft distillers making, having more freedom to experiment and having better skills at the same time. So you're getting the best of both worlds. So, you know, I think there's a lot of really tasty stuff coming out and, you know, it, you know, again, not everything's going to be for everybody, but, you know, for me, one of the fun things about spirits is trying stuff. And so you might find a, you know, empire rye that you're just like, this is amazing. Or you might find, you know, one of the, the Pennsylvania ryes is more, you know, in, in tune with your flavor profile. But I, that to me is the big thing that I've noticed over the last couple of years is that the overall quality of American whiskey has gotten way better from the, uh, the craft distillers. And um, that's, I think, showing up in the awards. You know, AEI's competition, we're awarding more medals overall. And, I, and it's not because I think our judges have gotten soft. It's I think the quality overall has gotten really better. And so that's, to me, the one of the exciting things. And so there's now really good whiskey being made almost in every state and every you know locality and you can find various you know uh you know variations on different styles in each state that um some that will appeal to you more than others so that's kind of the the exciting thing for me is getting to taste these more mature whiskeys coming out of uh, craft distillers and um and just getting to enjoy them so that's a big thing i think overall on the regulation side, I think there's real movement on categorizing American single malt at the federal level. I think that's going to be good for American whiskey and trade overall. So I'm, I'm hopeful for that. And I think it's going to be interesting to just see how other states, I think this idea of regional variations of whiskey is, is coming back more and more. And um, so it'll be interesting to see what other states decide to do about that. Other states adopt, you know, regional definitions of what, you know, what their whiskey type is or what, what's their unique spin on it. Like I said, whether it's Texas with their, you know, intense aging environment or whether it's Missouri with their grain and wood requirement or, you know, whatever, whatever it might be. So I think that's going to be interesting to see is how the regionality sort of reemerges in American whiskey. At the same time, we have this sort of universal market, national marketplace and getting to taste what regional grain variations taste like and being able to say like, well, here's a rye whiskey ma made from rye grain in Colorado versus New York versus Pennsylvania. And, mm -hmm. you know, obviously there are going to be slightly different, you know, production pro processes. Um, but I think that's going to play an interesting role. So we, we might even say that that terroir in American whiskey is now 
returning once again yeah. to the agricultural roots, which is, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing because you know, before it really, it was just sort of an aging thing. It's like, where, where mm -hmm. are you sticking it in a barrel? And now, yes, yeah. that's still the thing, but we've, we've now got the agricultural roots returning and people thinking more carefully about it. We also have the reemergence. I'd like to just mention of uh, heirloom grains, uh, bloody butcher mm -hmm. corn. We've got some, yeah. you know, dif different types of corns, different, traditional grains are, are being used. So that's also something for people to keep an eye out. And I, I really couldn't agree more with you on the across the board with a few exceptions, caveat in craft whiskeys, because whether it's whiskey or any other type of spirit, it's funny when I visit my craft distiller friends and partners whom I've been working with for over half a decade now, and I taste their stuff, I kind of get a little bit, a, a bit of a chuckle out of it because I would never tell this to their faces, but it's like, this tastes nothing like what you were making the first time I walked through this door, which is like, yeah. maybe not exactly the face you want to present to your local customers or your loyal follower right. base who might be under the impression if they've been buying every release that you've been doing, maybe they're not aware of the difference between that first bottle and the current bottle that they can get because it's been little gradual tweaks and changes over the course of several years. But for me, it's like, <laughs> this tastes nothing like what you were first putting out. And I don't think there's ever been an instance where that difference in flavor has been a bad thing to my taste buds. Yeah. So it's, it's really exciting. And I, I do think that, you know, with the, the increase in, um, you know, golds and silver medals at, at ADI. Uh, what I want to point out to people just to underscore what you said, it's not the judges getting softer. This is a real meritocracy. And the process that we have for spirits judging at ADI really does de-risk the potential of people just picking their favorites of what they prefer because of the way that the panel is structured and because mm -hmm. of the way that we deal with outlier scores and, and the conversation that takes place after that initial blind judging to come to a consensus-based score. So it really is a meritocracy. When you see a medal, it's like, well, this isn't the Olympics. There's more than one gold medal being awarded per category, right. but the process is still just as rigorous. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the, the quality across the board does seem to be increasing. Um, about this book, is there anything that we have failed to cover here that you wanted to make sure we cover before we jump into the lightning rounds? Um, no, I, I mean, I just really hope that people enjoy the book, uh, you know, go out, buy it. Um, if you, you know, support your local bookstores. You can request them to order it. It's available, obviously, through Amazon and other online book retailers. And that's the that's the primary thing. I put a lot of time and energy into it, and I just really hope, you know, I found lots of really fascinating stories, more information than could actually fit in the book, and I just hope people really enjoy it. Yeah, and the photos and some of the historical uh, graphics that you were able to pull up through research were also really, really nicely implemented. So, uh, yeah, we will have links over on the show notes page, modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast, where you can go to grab your copy of the book. If you don't happen to have a local bookstore down the street from you that can uh, can import that and call you when it arrives. So with that, let's do a qu couple quick lightning rounds. Yeah. Favorite cocktail, but this time we're in 
the whiskey space exclusively. What's your favorite whiskey cocktail? Uh, so my go-to overall is going to be the Manhattan, but if it's a hot day, scotch and soda, like it's just mm. nothing better on a hot day to be for than, than that. But overall Manhattan, like with good bourbon. Yeah. Yeah. Manhattan. I feel like it's a, it is a really popular cocktail format. But it's one of those formats that it's like, no, oh, oh, this is our riff on a man. It's like, can I just get like a, you know, like the the, the regular thing that is so yeah. delicious that it spawned right. all these these offshoots. So yeah, yeah, a, a good Manhattan. I that that's and my, actually and I I'm very simple. Like to me, best Manhattan, Evan Williams Black Label and like uh, Carpano Antica, just like it's killer. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That's sort of like almost like highbrow lowbrow. That's yeah. like highbrow vermouth with a uh, slightly, uh, we'll call it the every man's whiskey. Um, yeah. All right. Here's a, here's a question that we've implemented since the pandemic. Give people a little dose of happy brain chemicals. What's a small or idiosyncratic occurrence that always makes your day when it happens? Yeah. So, you know, this, uh, I think this is going to be a, a little bit, you know, sappy or whatever, but uh, my youngest son is four. And when he just like, he's like, dad, I want to sit on the couch and watch TV with you. I'm like, okay. It just makes me, you know, my heart warm. He just likes, you know, every once in a while, he's like, I'm a big boy. I don't need you. I'm going to play my own games. But every once in a while, he's like, we need to sit together and I want to be right next to you. I'm like, okay, that makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. That's like the literal brain chemical right there. Oxytocin. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel the same way. We have a, we have a, a cattle dog and he is, he likes to do his job. His job mm -hmm. is protecting the house, following my, my wife around, um, right. you know, getting, getting any food scraps that we drop. Uh, it, but he's not particularly cuddly. And, but there's a couple of situations that we know that if, all right, well, if it's this time of day and I go and lie down on this couch, he's just going to hop up right next to me and just put his head right on my leg and it's going right. to be great. So yeah, 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 I love it. If you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would it be? Where would you go? What would you drink? Just paint us a picture. And I know that you've already gotten this question before. So yeah. So last time I went historical, but I was so thinking about it, given the pandemic, what I really want to do is I'd love to go to Duke's bar in London with uh, David T. Smith and his wife and my wife and just drink Vespers and martinis. And Duke's is this really elegant hotel bar and it they do, you know, table side service with a little cart they bring up, you know, and very personable and it's just it's really fun and i that's what i i miss you like i i got spoiled being able to see david who's a good friend of mine you know a couple times a year here in the us and me going over to the uk and and but since the pandemic like <laughs> you know we've talked on the phone but we haven't had a drink together in a long time and so i was just like the four of us at duke's would be fantastic that's what I feel like. Yeah, I was just reading, I want to say a punch or imbibe article on Dukes and their their specific martini. Isn't their martini like some crazy, <laughs> crazy amount of booze in there? 
Yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah, it's really high. So, I mean, but, you know, what they're also known for is the Vesper, right? It's in the James Bond books. David is a is a big James Bond fan. And so uh, it's a fun drink. It's vodka, you know, gin and, and uh, Lillet and I think orange bitters. I can't remember exactly. Really tasty. But it's all a part of, it's not just the drink, it's the atmosphere. So, but yeah, yeah they're, they're, their drinks are boozy, but really good. So. Nice. Nice. Uh, last thing here, and, and this is a good question considering uh, all of the different little nuances we were talking about with some of the emerging regionalization in, in whiskey here. Uh, but do you have any unusual or controversial views in the spirits and cocktail space? Uh, yeah, I would say, um, I guess my controversial take would be that wheat whiskey is not soft. That's a common like refrain that a lot of people talk about, about wheat or not wheat whiskey, excuse me, wheated bourbon being soft compared to it, it's not. It just it all depends on barrel entry proof. Um a, the classic example in my mind is taste maker's mark next to larceny. They taste totally different. They're both wheated bourbons. And there's no nobody in the world, I think, would call larceny soft. <laughs> So, um, I would say, so anyway, that would like, I think that's the, I would say my slightly controversial kind of take and, but, but that's something that's a world I've been delving into more about, uh, barrel, barrel entry proof on, on American, uh, whiskey and how big an impact that that has on flavor profile that we haven't sort of appreciated for a while now. So, yeah, well, Eric, this has been a really fun conversation about a really fun book. Um, you know, I am, I'm to be a hundred percent honest, I am not as bullish on American whiskey as I am on certain other spirits like agaves and canes mm-hmm. and eau de vie. Um, those yeah. tend to be where I, I like to spend my time as well as gin, but, but you know what? Uh, I think my big takeaway is that this is a, probably the best time in recent history to be circling back and spending a little bit more time in the American whiskey space, especially, you know, no dig on bourbon. This is, you know, this is, this is bourbon's month after all in September, but uh, especially some of these emerging bourbon kind of regional categories, as well Mm -hmm. as some of the other types of, of whiskeys, whether they're smoked or empire or American single malt. So I do hope that uh, our listeners will check out this book and use it if, like me, you're maybe thinking about spending more time in the American whiskey space as your guidebook, your literal atlas and roadmap through mm-hmm. the highways and byways of American whiskey. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for coming on again to be a guest here on the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And like I say in the book, that we're at the high water mark right now, American whiskey, and it's just getting better. There's no better time to be drinking it. So enjoy it. Amen to that. And cheers to you. All right. Cheers. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. 
The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is, the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here, and by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, bourbon and American whiskey insights courtesy of Eric Zandona, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2021.